Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Welcome to the Bible Line. The scripture says that we are to study and show ourselves approved of God as workmen who are not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's what we are about. God tells us to handle his word accurately, not to misrepresent him. And that's the last thing in the world we want to do. So for the next hour, we're taking questions that you may have as you've been studying a challenging portion of scripture or some a personal issue you're facing in your life or ministry or church and you'd like biblical counsel on, well, if we can help by the grace of God, we will do our best and point you to his holy, infallible, inerrant word. As always, you can reach us locally, 525-1859. We have our toll-free number for all of our Internet listeners, and that number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP dot net. Any of those ways will get you through today. If you call, we, of course, give preference to live callers. You can simply dictate your question, but if you go on the air, um, you can remain anonymous. You can give your name. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a number of questions that have come in over the last several weeks, so let's get to them. Uh, The first uh, caller would like to know, I'm actually waiting for the screen to come up here. Um, This person writes that we are former members of CBC and greatly appreciate the teaching and wisdom. Uh, We do have a live caller, though. We always give preference, as you said, to live callers. So let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Thank you very much. Um, We were discussing in Rick's ABF on Sunday, grieving the Holy Spirit. And... Rick suggested that we call in the Bible line if we had any specifics on this. Um, In reading MacArthur's commentary, he seems to think that you can still grieve the Holy Spirit, and those who do, do so by denying the deity of Christ. And I I know that I've I've read certain passages on this in in certain contexts that it was, I, I guess, specifically for the Pharisees at that time when Christ said this, but I, I just want to, to hear your opinion on this, Pastor Brogy. All right. Uh, I don't think you're referring to grieving the Holy Spirit, but no doubt blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Is that what the discussion that's, was on, Rick? That's what it was. And um, All right. what I had uh, shared with our class was that Walvert and Zook in the Bible Knowledge Commentary felt that the uh, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as described in that, uh, I think it was in uh, Luke. Uh, was it Luke? I can't remember right now. Yeah, it's found in all, all, all three. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the synoptics all address the issue. And uh, Walvert and Zook, there's basically two major positions that people have taken. Uh, some would say that it is an impossible sin to commit today. 
And uh, and I and I would agree with uh, Dr. Walverd, who's now in heaven, as is Dr. Zook, in the sense that you cannot totally reproduce uh, the situation that you had there in the first century. Um, it's interesting. Uh, this this sin is found in Matthew 12. It's found in uh, Luke 11. It's it's found in Mark chapter three. And of course, uh, the context is when Jesus does a, a miracle, it says uh, there was brought to him a demon possessed man who was blind and dumb and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Why did they ask that question? Because he was doing miracles that the prophet Isaiah and others had predicted Messiah would do. And of course, one of the messianic titles is son of David. Could this be the son of David, Messiah himself? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing this, and knowing their thoughts, he said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall he call his kingdom? Uh, shall then, um, how then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul... Um, I cast out demons, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they'll be your judge. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So they basically attribute the power working in Jesus to the head demon, Satan himself. And of course, um, one position, as I mentioned, that a number of um, different Bible expositors have taken over the centuries is that because you cannot exactly reproduce the circumstances where Jesus is physically walking on the earth with the Holy Spirit living in him uh, and ministering through him, that in that sense, you cannot commit blasphemy of the spirit. Now, I would say, well, I would agree with that, that you, you cannot reproduce that exact situation. But is there another way to blaspheme the spirit? And of course, he, he goes on and he makes this statement. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So there's no such thing as neutrality for Christ. You're either on his team or you're not. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. And, and I think that, by the way, is important to underscore when you deal with people who uh, are fearful uh, that they've done something that has hurt God's heart so bad that they can never be forgiven. In Mark's uh, account, he says it a little bit differently. Again, the Gospels never contradict, they only complement. There he said, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So it's good to underscore the truth that all sins can be forgiven men. But he said the one exception, of course, is whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And we read the same thing in Luke and in this text here in, uh, in Mark chapter 12. Uh, and whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Again, it's an eternal sin. So this is really an interesting statement that he makes. He says all kinds of blasphemy can be forgiven of men, even blasphemy against the son, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, in what sense were they blaspheming? They were attributing evil 
to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Why was this an unforgivable sin? Well, uh, a number of reasons, you know, on the mouth, uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. And so the mouth of the father had spoken by the prophets and had given a demonstration that Jesus was indeed Messiah. And they rejected that testimony. And if you know Matthew's gospel, he's already highlighted a couple of instances where he reminds them of what the prophets had said, what God the Father said by the prophets, and how they had rejected that testimony. Uh, Jesus himself was claiming to be the son of David, the son of God. And they were rejecting his testimony. So the only testimony that was left to the Pharisees was that specifically of God, the Holy Spirit. And now they were rejecting his testimony. And so they were committing an eternal sin. In total unbelief, they were shutting their hearts off against God. So in the truest sense, you cannot reproduce these situations, but can blasphemy of the Spirit still be committed? I think so in this respect. Uh, Today, uh, the Spirit of Truth, as he's called, convicts a man, a woman of their sin, and he shows them their need to turn to Christ. And that person hardens their heart and they say, no. And God says, look, your, your drunkenness, your adultery is evil. You need to repent. You need to change your mind and come to Christ. And the person says, no. And they keep saying no against God, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, no one comes to the father unless the father draws him. Uh, it's the work of the spirit in us and upon us before our conversion that helps us to see one, our sin and its gravity and, and the judgment that it deserves. But also he is the one who helps us to understand the cross and what Jesus accomplished as our substitute. And when we keep telling the spirit of truth, no, what are we really saying? We're basically saying what you're saying to me is not true. It's not worth following. It's not worth subscribing to. And when you habitually tell him that, you're, you're basically calling the spirit of truth a liar. And there comes a point in a person's life when you have exhausted the patience of God. Now, God is very long-suffering. Um, the scripture says he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Um, God is compassionate. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, uh, King David wrote in Psalm 103. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. Uh, He will not always strive with us, however. And that's what Genesis says. The Spirit of God shall not always strive with men. There there comes a point where he will not keep his anger forever. And the the dam of, of God's wrath breaks because man rejects God's mercy and God's message. So, um, again, you know, the Lord alone knows when a person can cross that line. But there is a line that people can cross when it comes to hearing the gospel. Uh, you don't have forever to make a decision for Christ. And again, God alone knows who, who those kinds of people are. You would have thought maybe the thief on the cross would have been one such person who lived an e- evil, wicked life, who, as Matthew reveals in his account, like the Pharisees and scribes, was actually on the cross, both thieves blaspheming and cursing the Lord Jesus. They were blaspheming Almighty God right to his face. But as Jesus said, blasphemies against the Son of Man can also be forgiven. Uh, But as he hung there that six hours on that Friday, he had a change of heart. 
I don't know how he put it together. Maybe the sign over the top of the head, not much to read there, but one sign, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It just kind of reverberated in his heart and, and he heard and saw the things that Jesus said. Jesus uh, quoted right from the Psalm, Psalm 22, one of the great messianic Psalms. Maybe this Jewish man, as he hung there next to Christ realized that he was indeed the Christ. He obviously did because he said, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realized his kingdom was not going to end that day in some grave, but he had to be the promised son of God. Indeed, the king of the Jews who would die, be buried and raised from the dead. You would have thought that man had crossed the line that was uncrossable. So it's not always as we think. Um, but again, Jesus said, look, there are those who are on the rocky soil who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. They have this emotional experience, but there's no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation or testing, they, they apostatize, they, they fall away. And there are people like that who intellectually embrace the gospel, but they don't respond with a true change of heart or mind, which is what the word metaneo, uh, translated repent means. They don't really truly believe. They believe about Christ, but not in Christ. And so when Jesus explains the meaning of the parable, he says, because of their decision, the devil is given permission to take the seed that they may not believe. Um, And so lack of decision is a decision. You're either for me or against me. Again, there's no neutrality. So, uh, again, God is the ultimate judge. We can't go around and say, well, he's committed blasphemy of the spirit or, you know, the Lord alone knows uh, that our job is just to preach the gospel, to be faithful, to be gracious, to be truthful. uh, But we, with gentleness and boldness, present the plan of salvation. Then we leave the results to God. The uh, consensus we did have, however, in class was that if you're worried about having committed uh, the unpardonable sin, that likely you haven't. Good point. Absolutely. If someone's worried about it, I promise you, you haven't committed it. Absolutely. Right. We've yeah. got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, you two. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Sure. What's um, your question? Have, go ahead. I have a very important question that is uh, real. Uh, I'm following uh, the news uh, with the ISIS situation going on. I think it's a very uh, big deal. I think Christians need to know what's going on in, in this situation. I would like for you, Pastor Brogy, to address um, ISIS, Muhammad himself, so-called peaceful Muslims, and the Koran, the best you can in the you know just a little bit of time, if you would do that. I'd appreciate it. I think it's uh, very important. I think you'll have some good things to say about it. Well, uh, I appreciate it, and uh, it is sad. I, I read just this morning coming in on in the uh, Wall Street Journal post that 120 uh, Christians in Syria were arrested in the last 24 hours uh, by these ISIL militants and with plans, I assume, to execute them as they've done with so many Christians. It's, it's a horrible thing. Uh, this is what... Uh, Jesus said would happen, especially in the end of time, that men would deliver people over to be executed, thinking they're doing God a favor. And that's exactly what these people are doing. They are killing people with impunity in their minds because they think they're serving the living God. Uh, Of course, they are serving the teachings of the Koran You know, we like to say, well, you know, these are uh, militant Muslims who are, in essence, you know, distorting a peaceful religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
The fact is, is that these are Muslims who are simply following the Quran. The Quran says to kill the Trinitarians. It, it, it speaks of killing both Christians and Jews, uh, that that is a righteous act to do. Uh, they are just taking the Quran at face value. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we speak of fundamentalist Muslims and we speak of fundamentalist Christians. And the term fundamentalist has become kind of a pejorative term in our day. Historically, the term fundamentalist was actually a great term. It was used to really describe someone who held to the non-negotiables, to the fundamentals of the faith. And so at the turn of the um, 19th century into the 20th century, when modernism, what today we call liberalism, had entered into the church, thoughtful Christians began to ask one another, well, what are some of the non-negotiables that, you know, we may have a different view on uh, on baptism or a differing view on how the church should be structured, but what are the non-negotiables that are really tests of orthodoxy that are needed to embrace to call yourself a Christian? And so they listed some of those fundamentals and included in it, of course, was just taking the Bible at face value because it was the inspired, inerrant, infallible, eternal word of God. Well, that's what Muslims are doing with the Quran, some Muslims. And uh, there are certainly Muslims in this country who are not violent, who have been westernized, but they're just not following the Quran. And then there are Muslims in this country who appear to be nonviolent. But one of these days, look out, there's no telling what's going to happen across America. And the Muslims are not growing at a slow rate. They are growing at a fantastic rate. It's estimated in the next 20 to 25 years at the rate American Muslims are having children that there will be 50 million Muslims in America. And unless these people are loved and one to Christ, should the Lord Jesus tarry, we're going to have some real confrontations in this world like we've never seen before. So these are people who hate Christians, they hate Jews, uh, and they're set on destroying them. And of course, uh, this comes right out of the Quran. You can either kill them or you can give them a tax. I forgot the technical Islamic term that's found in the Quran. You can give them a tax to pay. And again, unfortunately, there have been some countries of the world where they've entered in. They're in 11 countries right now where they have geographical territory, where they've charged the tax, and then they've killed the person. So it's like some of these Christian people can't win. And I realize some of the Christians who've been slaughtered maybe have been nominal Christians, but a lot of these Coptic Christians are born-again Christians in Egypt and Libya and other places, you know, and it's, and it's horrible what's happened. And we think, well, this will never happen in America, but look, you, you can't uh, toy with evil. You need to cut the snake's head off. You, you need to deal with it in a forthright way. You, need, you, you can't, you know, say, well, these are just terrorists. These are Muslim terrorists. These are true Muslims in the truest sense. Uh, maybe next time, if I think about it, I'll bring in actually some of the texts out of the Quran, and I'll read them to you uh, so you can see. I'm not making this up. This is what the Quran teaches, precisely what it teaches. And uh, we're seeing it lived out in our day. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, thanks, Dr. Brogy, for taking my call. Uh, first off, just wanted to thank you for this ministry and teaching the truth. Um, you've been a huge blessing to my family ever since we attended CBC, and 
and was baptized by you, but we've since moved back home and been looking for churches. Uh, my main question is, we recently had a sermon preached, and um, long story short, our pastor, we've been going here for about seven months now, is a old, old earth creationist, he calls himself. Um, so basically my question is, should that be a deal breaker for us? So, um, again, people define that in different ways, so I would need some specificity. Let let me explain. Uh, Some people uh, would argue that um, they believe in an old creation and that they see a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. They would say that God created the world perfectly, um, that uh, Satan rebelled, which created the cosmos to fall into chaos. And they would say that's Genesis 1-2. And then they would say Genesis 1-3 on out uh, explains the recreation of God. And so they would say that's the explanation scientifically why the world would, in their minds, date to be so old. Um, I, I don't agree with that position, not at all. But there have been a lot of Christians who have held that, D.L. Moody, um, Uh, a number of great Christian men uh, because that's what they were taught in their day and they didn't really think about it, I don't think, and uh, they just embraced it. And uh, there are others who would say, well, the creation is old because there are gaps between the days of creation. Uh, There's real problems with that. Uh, That, to me, would be a deal breaker because it it shows a lot of a lack of skill in how someone is interpreting the scripture. Uh, If you apply just a a literal hermeneutic, a literal principle for interpreting the scripture, and unless there's clearly a symbol or metaphor that is in the text, and and this is why maybe in the truest sense, you know, sometimes people ac- accuse evangelicals of, oh, you just literally interpret the Bible. Well, not really. We hold a historical grammatical interpretation of the scriptures because we recognize rules of grammar, be they Hebrew or Greek, and, and we respect those. So when Jesus said, I'm the door, he didn't mean he was a four by six door. Uh, we recognize metaphors. We recognize symbols. But if the... <laughs> If the plain sense makes good sense, we should seek no other sense. Otherwise, we come up with nonsense. And to put big gaps of time between the days of creation not only does a great injustice to the text because uh, of how the creation is unfolded, that's a total impossibility. And I cover that in my sermon uh, in Genesis, why that's a total impossibility. But it ignores just the plain reading of Scripture. No one could just read Genesis 1 at face value and come up with either gaps between the days or making the days long periods of time, which is another position that some people have held. They'd say, well, they're just not 24-hour days. They're, they're days, you know, they'd say, you know, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So, you know, these can be protracted days. Well, the Hebrew word yom, which translates day, Whenever it is accompanied by a number, it refers to a literal day. And no one, by the way, liberal or conservative, debates that in other texts of Scripture. So that when Joshua says, well, we'll cross over in three days, the Jordan, he meant three days. He didn't mean 3,000 years. Um, No one debates that in other passages of Scripture, but because many times they're bringing outside influence 
to the text of Scripture uh, when they approach Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They they want to make these long days or spaces between the days. So um, the, the position that, you know, there's gaps of time between the days, obviously I don't agree with that. And to me, that's just a poor handling of Scripture. And I, I would probably be looking for another church. If the days are just long days, that to me is a poor handling of Scripture. Because there's over 450 times in the Old Testament where a number is accompanied with the day Yom. And they wouldn't take it any other way. And for them to understand Genesis 1 and 2 differently, I think would be wrong. To say that there was a, a, a gap of time between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 3, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. But I don't think that would necessarily be a deal breaker if that was the only issue that was keeping this pastor back. And I would try to encourage him to think through otherwise, uh, because, um, you know, I think there's good reason to think through otherwise. And I cover this again in my series on, on Genesis, but there are some good people in the history of the church. I say in the history of the church in the last, you know, 75 to a hundred years, because they were trying to reconcile science with the Bible. But I don't think we have to reconcile it. Because science is not to have the last word. God's word is. You know, the current science at one point said that the world was flat. And there were evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who said, no, Isaiah and Proverbs says it's round. And Christopher Columbus believed it was round based on the scripture, that he was not going to sail off the end of the world and fall into some pit. Um, He based that on his understanding of scripture as he wrote in his own diaries. So scripture may have the latest word, but it does, I mean, uh, science may have the latest word, but it doesn't have the last word. Um, So I don't think we have to reconcile the Bible with science. I think you can. I think whenever the Bible, of course, speaks on a scientific issue, it speaks with absolute authority and we can believe it no matter what science is saying. Uh, The science in George Washington's day said that, you know, if there was a disease in the body, you should bleed the body. And that's how our first president died, based on the medical science of that day. The Jewish people said, no, the life is in the blood. To bleed the body is to work against the body. And it was the Jewish physicians who convinced modern medicine that the techniques that they were using were in error based on the word of God. So, um, you know, you've got to weigh all these things carefully. You've got to look at the whole package. I always encourage people, find the strongest most sound church you can find in that community and be a part of it and support the pastor and pray for him. There have got to be some things that you cannot negotiate on. You can't negotiate on the virgin birth or the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his deity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the infallibility, and the inerrancy of the Bible. But the issue in our day is not always inerrancy. It's an issue of not, is the scripture the word of God? But sometimes how do we interpret the scripture? And there are people who very sloppily handle the scripture. We've got a church moving to Hilton Head and any pastor listening to me today who's on Hilton Head and even in Beaufort, because they'll come here next, needs to listen up. Perry Noble is extremely, extremely dangerous. He's a novice at best in handling the scripture. Error after error after error. He will bring to this county in In all the places he's been in South Carolina, he's emptied out churches. 
He's literally emptied out churches. Part of that is those pastors' faults because they were not teaching the scriptures soundly. But some of it, too, was they weren't guarding their sheep well enough. I would say to every pastor in Hilton Head who's listening or anyone who's a member of a church in Hilton Head, you need to go to your pastor. If he's ignorant on New Spring Church, he needs to bone up on it. He needs to educate himself and he needs to begin to warn his people because they just announced on Sunday they're coming to Hilton Head and seven other new cities. They have 30,000 people in churches in South Carolina, and they are bringing a very dangerous message. But you see, to the person who lacks discernment, you know, Paul's told the Corinthians, there are some who have another spirit, who preach another gospel, who preach another Jesus. They talk about the spirit. They talk about the gospel. They talk about Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. And if you're not really discerning and you don't know the Bible well, you can easily get sucked in to the error that he is going to bring to our county. Um, So there are some non-negotiables, I would say, that you cannot compromise on. But you need to think through, you know, uh, the whole package uh, with this man and, and maybe give him some good things to read. Uh, we have Ken Ham, by the way, who's coming uh, to Community Bible Church, and uh, he'll be addressing this issue, I'm sure, as he does wherever he comes and speaks. We're, let's go to our next caller because someone's waiting. I appreciate that, brother, calling. And, and if you want to do a follow-up as a former member, you call me and set up a phone appointment. We'll talk some more. All right. Very good. We do have another caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, hi, Pastor Brokey. I have a quick question. I'm studying in the book of Daniel. And I got to chapter 7, and there's just so much in there that I'm not understanding. Could you break that down for me? Well, uh, Daniel's a, a, a great book of the Bible, and it's one of the key books of the Old Testament to understanding the Revelation. Uh, right now, it's not available online, but it is available uh, at our bookstore. Uh, my, my teaching on Daniel that I did back in 93, and I'm going to reteach the book of Daniel in much more depth and in much more specificity than I did the first time. I felt like I did kind of a purview of it, but he has this vision of four beasts and, uh, these various beasts represent different coming kingdoms in the history of the world. The final beast is a, a picture of a revived Roman empire. And uh, we're going to see in the last of the last days, some people debate how this is going to unfold, whether it's European Union, whether it's some Arab nations that are coming together that geographically may have fit in that part of the empire. But there's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. And out of this final beast will come one who will be the beast, who will be the Antichrist himself, who will come in the place of Christ. He will convince the world as a man of peace that he is Messiah. The Jews initially will embrace him, but the son of man who's presented also in this chapter will crush him. So you have a picture of the ancient of days representing the uh, God, the son uh, God, the father, a picture of the son of man representing God, the son and, um, and the ultimate reign and rule of the true Christ, the highest one over the kingdoms of this world. But stay tuned. We'll be coming to that. And, uh, I hope, uh, to give you a, a very detailed sermon in the months ahead. Let's go to the next question. All right. Very good. Uh, we actually had uh, somebody that was being called back. Um, okay. So if you are listening, call us at 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. 
And you can always uh, email us at tbl at wagp.net. Okay, they're not answering, so we'll go to that uh, question we began the program with. Um, former members of CBC would uh, have now gone to Japan, and uh, you, in uh, some discussion you had with them... While they're in Japan, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, ...had advised them on the, the Southern Baptist Church and a church that they were considering. They ended up having... Uh, the uh, pastor come to their home, and when they questioned him extensively for over four hours and visited the church for uh, six months before joining, theme, uh, things seemed solid, even though uh, they don't care for Lifeway publications and a few of the Southern Baptist uh, traditions. Um, now, recently the church introduced Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God workbook for the Sunday evening program of study. Um, and um, they would like to know, they purchased some of the book uh, or some of the books and found some of the information in there to be uh, very strange. And they would be grateful if you can uh, share any comments or information that you have about whether this is a solid um, uh, study or not. Well, reading your question here in front of us uh, on the screen that's come up, you know, I suggested an SPC church because generally speaking, many times SPC churches are conservative and Bible believing. You have to look at each one personally. You can't just go anymore by the virtue of the fact that they're Southern Baptists because some of them are dual aligned with cooperative Baptists. We have two churches in our town, Tidal Creek and the Baptist Church of Beaufort. They're dual aligned cooperative Baptists. Uh, cooperative Baptists are out to lunch. Uh, they start on the premise that the Bible is not the infallible, inerrant word of God. And that's what they teach. And people can say, well, we don't believe that, but that's what they teach. And if churches are giving to that, then that's what they are supporting. In either case, most Southern Baptist churches that are not aligned with cooperative Baptists in any sense, for the most part, can be solid. But you have to look at each one. Um, Henry Blackaby is a good guy. I mean, he loves the Lord. He wrote a workbook called Experiencing God. Would I agree with every jot and tittle in experiencing God? No. Um, one thing that he does well is he underscores uh, our need to depend upon the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us through Scripture. Um, and he affirms the priesthood of the believer, that we're believer priests. One thing that he doesn't do well, because he's a real strict congregationalist, is he doesn't recognize uh, leaders in the church. And so the church, in a lot of ways, have adopted uh, American democracy instead of a uh, biblical church government. When the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give rule over your soul, uh, that's not very uh, democratic. But that's what the scripture teaches, uh, that there's leaders in the church who are to lead, who are to rule and who are to be respected. They're not infallible. And in turn, we submit to one another in the Lord. But some of the things and illustrations that he gave in the workbook, in my opinion, break down that distinction that God clearly makes in the word of God. And if you want to study that in more depth, you might listen to some of the sermons I did out of the pastoral epistles, uh, specifically out of first uh, Timothy three or Titus one. Those would be, I think, very useful to you. Uh, the one thing that this uh, person did write that I didn't share with you is that their pastor has uh, shared from the pulpit that uh, in reading uh, Henry Blackaby, uh, he recently referenced new revelations he discovered in the book. And I think that's what really yeah. is concerning that. Well, again, Henry Blackaby does not teach that God is giving new revelation. So if he said that 
you know, um, Henry Blackaby taught that. He does not teach that, in fairness, to Blackaby in experiencing God. No, it's their pastor. But, but the pastor who says that he's had new revelation, it might just be a sloppy use of terms because God isn't giving new revelation. But Christians do that all the time. They say, well, I was reading the Bible this morning. I had a revelation. And really, I'd say, well, you didn't have a revelation. You had an illumination because God is not giving any new revelation. The canon of Scripture is closed. But he may take uh, what he has written, what he has revealed in the graphe and the written word of God and illumine it to your heart where it jumps off the page of Scripture and you see something maybe that you've never seen, a promise you're to claim, some aspect of God's character, a sin you are to repent of. That's an illumination. That's not a revelation. So I want to give your pastor the benefit of the doubt here. I'm assuming he was just sloppy in his terminology. And I think if you asked him, is the canon of the scripture still open? Is God still speaking? Um, and with new truth beyond the Bible, my guess is he would say absolutely not. So give him the benefit of the doubt. Go back and qualify. Now, if he came back and said, no, you know, this, this, is, this is new. This is, is, you know, equals John 3.16 or any other passage of Scripture, then I would leave that church immediately because that's what every cult is built on. Some dreams, some visions, some new revelation, some new testament, some new uh, prophet, some new dream that's authoritative on the same level of, as the Bible. And that's always heretical. All right, we've got that live caller standing by now. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. How you doing? Hi, Pastor Carl. Hey, good morning, brother. Good morning. This is Nate. Uh, I question I have, and uh, this I've been you know wondering about this for some time. But you know, in Genesis, when um, when the serpent deceived Eve, and she ate of the of the fruit, uh, nothing really happened until. Adam ate. That's when their eyes were open. Uh, what I was wondering: had Adam not ate of that fruit, what would have what would have happened? Would um would have creation fell, or or would have remained the same, being that the creation order came that Adam was created first? I'm going to hang up and listen to your answer on it. Well, it's a good question. It's one of those if questions, and in one sense, it's a, it is a good, thoughtful question. But we know, of course, that Adam did eat, and so the consequences came. But death spread through one man, through Adam. So I suppose you could say, in a technical sense, had Eve alone eaten, she would have died, and uh, that would have been it. But there would not have been an effect on the whole human race. The wages of sin is death, and what she did was sinful. Now, her sin was in deception. Adam's sin, as Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2, was with his eyes wide open. When he says, look, it was not Eve, who uh, Adam who was deceived, but Eve. Uh, he's reminding us, Adam knew precisely what he was doing. But the, the whole human race was affected, not through Eve, but through Adam. Because Adam is the head of the race. Uh, he was the first Adam, and he failed. And, of course, Paul makes a parallel between the one act of Adam and the one act of Christ in the second half of Romans chapter 5. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and spread to all men through the sin of Adam, even so, uh, through one act, Christ's death on the cross and what he accomplished there, you know, there was a righteousness that was provided for all people. 
So, uh, again, it's kind of a, a, a moot point in that they both did sin, and uh, God in his sovereignty knew what they were going to do. He didn't make them do it. He didn't program them. They weren't robots to do it. They were truly free people. But nonetheless, they both sinned, and so that's what we're living with today. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and the listener uh, dictated their question, they would like to know if it's okay to get tattoos. They had heard that... Jesus, in the book of Revelation, had a tattoo. Well, um, (laughs) that's a good question. I don't think Jesus had a tattoo. Now, it it says that it's written on his thigh, and it appears that it's it's on the robe that he's wearing, not on his skin itself. Um, Some people, you know, when they talk about tattoos, they would say, well, you know, my tattoo is not of a naked woman on my chest or on my arm, but it's a, it's a, it's of the cross. And like anything else you want to ask, <laughs> excuse me, first Corinthians ten thirteen or ten twenty three, is it beneficial? Uh, some things are permissible. Not everything is necessarily beneficial. And that's an important question to ask when considering a tattoo. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. So um, you want to ask, uh, what will a tattoo do for me if you're thinking of getting one? And is it really going to be beneficial and constructive? Are they permissible? Some would say they are, that the admonition in Leviticus nineteen twenty eight doesn't have application for us today. I think it does. Just like the next verse that speaks of a man lying with a man and a woman lying with a man. I think it's part of God's moral law and not part of his ceremonial law. But again, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians ten thirty one, And so you need to ask, uh, is it really something that glorifies God in our day? Uh, you know, it used to be that apart from maybe sailors, the only people that got tattoos were deviants. I have a friend who's been involved in prison ministry over the years, and he used to say, not everyone uh, who has a tattoo is in prison, but everybody who's in prison has a tattoo. And really, as a general rule, if you've ever done prison ministry, that, that's true. Uh, there, there is a certain deviant behavior that historically is associated with tattoos. Uh, do you think that's by chance? No, I I think there are some moral dictates that are being expressed from the human heart when a lot of people in years past got tattoos. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everyone today. There's a lot of people who, in in my view, in their ignorance, you know, to him who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. And so, um, you know, I think some don't really know. And in their ignorance, they get a tattoo and maybe they wish now that they've met Christ and their heart's been regenerated and there's a new sensitivity they have to the things of God. They, they wish they did not get one, but God did say, you shall not make any cuts in your body, uh, for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks for yourself. I am the Lord. I I don't think that's a part of God's ceremonial law. The next verse says, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot. The next verse says, do not turn to mediums or to spiritists and so forth. Um, you know, th- these are pretty, you know, pointed statements. And, uh, you know, and then he speaks against, you know, homosexuality and, you know, one thing after another, this is all part of God's moral will. Uh, not to mention, uh, in my view, 
Tattoos tend to call attention to yourself. And 1 Timothy 2.9 dictates against that. Uh, for instance, when he speaks of a woman in her dress, he speaks that it should be both modest and discreet. And the two words that are used is one refers to um, there should not be some sexual uh, appeal in the way the woman addresses, but nor should there be uh, the kind of dress that calls attention to her. Where, you know, there, there are some, some women who, um, you know, the, their, their dress is so bizarre, it's not necessarily immodest, but it's like walking into a room and they're in some kind of a parade where they're saying, look at me. And that's not what God has called us to, to do. And I think tattoos can sometimes do that. And many times people, when they call, they're really wrestling with this. And they're wondering whether or not they should do it. Look, when in doubt, cut it out. Uh, when in doubt, cut it out. Why? Because Romans fourteen twenty three says, whatever is not from faith is sin. And so if you can't do it in a clear conscience before God, and you're really seeking the Lord, then, then don't do it. But I don't think it's beneficial. I mean, think about it for a second. And, and I know it's changing, and it's, it's amazing to me the number of people who have tattoos now. And, and I see them all the time. You know, when I baptize people most every week, you can't help but see some of the tattoos that people are, are, are carrying on their bodies when I go to baptize them, on their toes, on their feet, you know, sometimes on their chest, on their hands and Praise God, they found Christ as Lord and Savior, and, and maybe they can use those tattoos as a springboard to remind them of the grace of God that saved them and delivered them. But, you know, when you, when you get these pastors who are advocating them or wearing them, in my view, they're on really shaky ground. And some of them that have done this, they've proven themselves to be on shaky ground because they're no longer professing Christians and have totally fallen away from the faith. I won't even go into that list today. But anyway, I hope that helps. I, but, but don't say that Jesus had a tattoo. That's not what the text says. Uh, it, it speaks of something really that's on his robe, not on his person. All right, let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh... I, a a good Christian brother years ago, gave me some advice. I was struggling with uh, some of the movies I was seeing. I heard a message on where it talked about why do Christians go to movies that curse their Lord. And so that was a big thing for me. The Lord started to pierce my heart, and it was just, it was hurting when I heard the Lord's name cursed. So I went to this website, pluggedin.com. And at first, it was really helpful because it told you exactly what curse words they used, and I say, oh, okay, then, you know, I can avoid it. But over the years, I've noticed that they have gone into such great detail in their their reviews that it's almost like reading a book. And it reminded me of the scripture about, you know, hanging a millstone around your neck, you know, don't cause your brother to stumble, because these images are imprinted in your head. Now, a week or two ago, Plugged In got a lot of criticism because one of the reviewers said that somebody emailed him and said, please do not go review that movie Fifty Shades of Grey. And he went on to say, well, I'm going to do it, and this is why. And he went on to explain that he's a watchman on the wall. They're called to go into the darkness and share the light. I read some post 
down, and a lovely lady said, so what you're saying is, is it's okay to keep sinning so that you keep other people from sinning. So at other web, Christian websites have called them out, quoting Scripture, saying that not even reviewers need to go and subject themselves to that. They're supposed to abstain from all of sexual immorality, etc. Now, the thing is that I could go further because, you know, it's not just how they've been called out for reviewing pornographic movies in the past, but they've also reviewed horror movies, etc. So the Lord just gave me that aha moment the other day, and I've not gone back to that site since. But my question is, is I know that, you know, you have exceptions like Ken Ham, who reviews Noah or Exodus, you know, movies like that where you're on the fence and you, you really want to know. But at the same time, there are certain non-negotiables you know based on reviews or commercials what not to see and what you know by Scripture. Uh, I'm not trying to be a legalist, but and I know not all movies or television shows are evil, but I know that over 90% of the movies probably are just filthy. So what are we as Christians to do? Because I used to go to the website because I say, okay, it provides a service. Now I see where plugged-ins become so worldly, and uh, I don't know. I was just wondering what your, no, your it's a good are. It's a good question, you know, and there's a, there's a downgrade that continues to happen across our nation and even in the church and the body of Christ. You know, a decade ago, I was speaking out against so-called Christian movie reviewers, and when people would call and ask, I haven't had this question in a long time, but I think we had it as recently as three or four years ago. And I would say, look, why would I trust someone who puts their head in the garbage bucket week after week, day after day to review Christian movies? Why would I trust them when they are breaking the scripture themselves? Why would I even want to trust their review? I wouldn't. Again, you know, things are changing. And Jesus said that men's hearts would grow cold and lawlessness would increase before his return from heaven. And it's happening at, at such a rapid rate. There's just a tsunami of sin that is sweeping our nation and our world. And Christians have some difficult decisions to make. I mean, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. How would a a brother in Christ justify going to a movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, when you already know it's a movie based on the book that has received national coverage, you could hardly turn on the news. I turned on the CBS Evening News one night, and the, the, the president of the United States' wife was talking about how she had it at her bedside table. You know, I mean, how, how can you not know about this book and the evil that it promotes and the distortive behavior that is becoming more and more normative in our world— because people are so a part of sin, they can't distinguish themselves from it. And by the way, that's a mark of maturity, is to have some discernment. You don't have to have the gift of discernment to be discerning. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice 
have trained their senses to discern good and evil. The word there, trained, is the Greek word that we directly get our word gymnasium from. They've gymnasticized their senses to discern good and evil. So because of a life of obedience, they have discernment. And, you know, as you walk with the Lord more and more, you know, sometimes just the title of the movie is all you need to know. Uh, I'm not going to go see that movie um, because there's a sense of discernment or sometimes you move in a direction and there's a sense of doubt in your heart. And you sense, no, I, I don't need to do that. I don't know why, but I just, I just doubt whether I should do it. Well, when in doubt, cut it out because the spirit of God will many times cause us to doubt. If our heart is to please God and to obey him, he will many times register those doubts. But how on earth could anyone knowing the, the terrible things that that book advocates, the perversions that that book advocates, not know that the movie that is going to try to display some of these things would be evil. You don't put your mind in the garbage bin to help other Christians. All they've done is great harm. And then they write about it with specificity as you're describing. Uh, That's a terrible thing. And that's not a good thing. And uh, in my view, uh, that reviewer, whoever he is, has lost, would have lost any credibility uh, that he had had. So anyway, let's go to the next question. Maybe we got time for one more to squeak in here. Indeed. Gregory from Derry, New Hampshire writes, how can I possess effective evangelism? What are some ways to be effective in spreading the gospel to non-believers as well as to those in different religions? Well, I appreciate that call from New Hampshire. A good place to start is just to deal with, especially people who are here in America Uh, There are certainly um, more and more international religions that are opening, uh, have opened the door. I just did an article for Answers in Genesis on Zoroasterism for their new apologetics book. And people say, I can't even say the word. What does that mean? Well, it's it's here in America now. Um, And but a good place to start is just to uh, deal with the average American uh, that has been in some respect Christianized, be they Catholic or Protestant or whatever they are, and start with those people. And if you want to learn how to share your faith, let me make a couple of practical suggestions. You can go to searchthescriptures.org, and I taught a course in our Institute of Biblical Studies, which is a 33-hour course of study that people can uh, work towards a Bible certificate. And one of the courses deals with witnessing without fear, how to give away your faith and some very practical ways in which to communicate the plan of salvation. I I wrote my own little booklet called, would you like to know God as your friend? Would you like to have God as your friend? And uh, that booklet is a great tool uh, because I realize that as an evangelist, not everyone has the gift of evangelism. But one of the things that we are to do as evangelists are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I wrote it in such a way that it explains the gospel. It's like the eunuch. How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? I tell people, look, just read the booklet. Just read it word for word and and, and you'll be explaining the gospel so people can receive Christ. Go online, listen to the DVD that accompanies that. Uh, You can get the booklet at searchthescriptures.org. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today.